0: Friends, it's good to be with you today. If we haven't met, my name is Adam, and I'm so glad you've made worship a priority today to start your week off, and I'm glad to be in God's presence with you. I want to start off to you uh, with showing you an ancient piece of pottery. In the Greek, this is called an ostraca. This is a shard of a broken pot. They were in plentiful supply. You can almost think of them like scratch paper in our day. This is where we get the word ostracized, from Ostraca for these little shards of clay. Annually, the citizens of Athens would be able to vote on one citizen to ban from the city of Athens for 10 years, like Bizarro Prom King, right? Like the opposite of what you would want. And they would vote by writing a name on the o- Ostrakon, the Ostrakon on these shards of Ostraca. And whoever got the most votes, as long as there was a minimum of 6,000 votes, whoever got the most had to leave the city of Athens in a matter of days. That's where we get the word ostracized. Centuries later, another method of public humiliation was invented. The pillory. The pillory. It was described this way by the author of The Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne. An instrument of discipline so fashioned as to confine the human head in its tight grasp, And thus hold it to public gaze. The very ideal of ignominy was embodied and made manifest in this contrivance of wood and iron. There can be no outrage, methinks, more flagrant than to forbid the culprit to hide his face for shame. Couldn't look away from folks in the public square. Now this punishment by public shame was outlawed in America uh, in the 19th century. But fast forward to the 21st century, and we have new methods, but the ostracism and shaming remain. What we're able to do is do it at a quicker pace. This is Jonah Lehrer. He was an up-and-coming author and journalist, and in his third book he had published, it was called Imagine, The Science of Creativity, it was discovered that he had fabricated quotes, and eventually that led to the discovery of even more plagiarism in previous works. And his publisher recalled two of his books, He lost his job at the New Yorker as a journalist. Then after a time, he emerged to offer an apology speech at the Knight Foundation Conference in Miami. So this is Jonah Lehrer giving his I'm sorry speech. And you zoom back and you see the whole thing. They showed a live feed of Twitter reactions as he was speaking. I mean, imagine if there was a screen here and you all could tweet how bad you thought the sermon was. Well, first of all, let's face it, that would never happen. But uh, I mean, (laughs) but uh, I think every sermon, if I, I, why would I give you a bad sermon? I'd work on it until I thought it was good. But zoom out and this is, the dude is having to carry on somehow while being publicly humiliated by the internet live in real time. To give you an idea of how poorly this went, BuzzFeed recapped the scene with the headline, the final humiliation of Jonah Lair. The Athenians ostracized, the colonists pilloried, and in our culture, you get canceled. There was someone online that posted, this wasn't the live Twitter feed, but someone on uh, the Guardian's website on their comment board said, Jonah Lair is such an overachiever. Let me get it right. Oh, it wasn't pleasurable. Oh, shoot, this is why I write stuff down. There was, it's, they, someone said there was something delightful about watching him be humbled. So cancel culture is a hot topic. You can find a lot of thoughts and a lot of opinions online or in the news. And I've tried to really think on how to distill this down. So this is just my definition. But my definition of cancel culture is when an individual or an entity, or a brand violates a social boundary and is decredited and removed from public legitimacy and participation. Now cancellation happens primarily online when an onslaught of Twitter users, bloggers, Facebookers, uh, and message board commenters all descend upon a shared target. Now the debate about cancel culture revolves around these questions. Who are the ones setting the social boundaries and by what criteria? In his 2015 book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, author John Ronson chronicles the lives of folks that we would now call canceled in 2022. He wrote this in 2015. Joan Alaire was one of the people that he interviewed. He also interviews Ted Poe, uh, Ted Poe was a judge in Texas who was famous or infamous for some of the sentencing guidelines he would put in place for people who had been convicted. This is what Judge Ted Poe said. The justice system in the West has a lot of problems, but at least there are rules. You have basic rights as the accused. You have your day in court. You don't have any rights when you're accused on the internet, and the consequences are worse. It's worldwide forever. So when it's most well-meaning, canceling someone is about accountability, right? Actions have consequences, that's true. And when there are perceived gaps in what someone has done and the consequences they've experienced, people online will rally to fill in that gap. These consequences usually involve the selected perpetrator losing their job. But as the author of that book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, chronicles, the consequences go far, far deeper than that for a long time. But I would say that cancel culture is differentiated from cries for consequences in two ways. One, when used as a form of social control, like, oh, well, you can't say that. And or when accompanied by a sense of glee or entertainment, that we're taking pleasure in watching a person's career or life just go down in flames, Now, I'm excited to team up on this series for the next three weeks uh, with my good friend who's a pastor in Tyler, Texas. His name's John Wayne, and he and I are collaborating on this together, and we've had a lot of great conversations around this topic. And and I hope that this will be helpful for you too as as we kind of try and look at cancel culture through a Christian lens. Because that's really the the question we want to explore. What is the Christian response to cancel culture? And this leads to deeper questions like, What are the dynamics of true and lasting accountability? What's the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness? What does a biblical process of restoration look like? And ultimately, our faith is one of radical forgiveness and grace. So, how is it that we get past the past and yet consequences have actions? I reverse that. Actions have consequences. So what's the tension between those two things? What I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word is that we have this instinct that we often want accountability for others, but amnesty for ourselves. In our scripture today, we're going to have a very stark look at at scandalous moral failure, accountability, and consequences. Aren't you glad you came? (laughs) In 2 Samuel, King David commits egregious and utterly reprehensible sin. He asserts his power as a king to have a physical relationship with Bathsheba, who was given no agency and treated as property. Then, after Bathsheba tells David that she's pregnant, he sends Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, off to the front lines of war and then commands his troops to withdraw from him In other words, he's orchestrating this man's death to cover up what had happened with Bathsheba and does all this through his orders. And I'm trying to speak in very broad terms here because I want to be sensitive to the fact that we have a wide range of ages in our congregation. And so we have an assault of the most evil variety, an adulterous pregnancy, and a death sentence that David has doled out to cover it up. That is 2 Samuel 11 in a nutshell. Chapter 12 begins with this in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan has been retained by David as an advisor, uh, and Nathan shows up well before this episode in 1 and 2 Samuel. He also serves, Nathan does, as a prophet. This isn't a footnote. He's He's a prophet of God. He speaks on behalf of God. And we can tell that from this verse alone. Now, prophets had an unpopular job speaking truth to power. And that's what Nathan does to a very unsuspecting King David. When he, he is Nathan, came to him, David, and said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had brought up. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So the analogy here is pretty clear to see. The the person who has everything uh, abuses their power to take from the person who has basically nothing. David's furious, verses 5 and 6 David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now David's clearly failing to see the parallel here, isn't he? Right? He's not understanding who this is meant for. Now there's a lot of Jewish law and tradition baked in to the conversation here. So there were certain expectations culturally and even prescribed in the Torah, the Jewish law, about how to treat visitors, how to treat travelers. And then there was also prescribed consequences, like paying something back four times over. So there's a lot of Jewish law and tradition baked in. I love what scholar Robert Bergen said about David. He said, David's own Torah-violating behavior had not robbed him of his commitment to impose the requirements of the Torah on others. Right? In other words, well, this guy needs to pay and not not understanding the entire time that the story was directed at him. He, He conveniently is able to set aside his own sin and disobedience and is eager to dole out the punishment according to the Jewish law on this other person. Sometimes we become even more enraged by issues of religion or morality or ethics by the same things that bind us. Or you ever have somebody you just, you just can't get along with, and part of the reason is because they're a lot like you. <laughs> right? I mean, sometimes we're just, we're even more bound to, to the same issues that make us so upset. But often we want accountability for somebody else and we want amnesty for us. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives and to your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. Man, this last verse just haunts me. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. David had been isolated on the roof by himself when he he saw and desired Bathsheba. Typically, kings don't have a lot of people in their lives telling them no. That's part of the problem. A sycophant is a person who tells powerful people what they want to hear in order to gain an advantage. But Nathan was no sycophant. He was a prophet of God. And now comes the moment of accountability. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah to be your own. This is what the word of the Lord says. Out of your household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who was close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And so David gets an ominous glimpse into his future and his consequences. And if you keep reading, the consequences for this get more imminent and more severe. Now at this point, David has a choice. Will he accept accountability or will he deflect blame? I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you could either accept accountability or you could try and deflect it. Deny, deny, deny. I had an episode from middle school where I was found to be in possession of something I should not have had. And when my dad confronted me about it, I told him that I was holding it for some kid on the bus and it wasn't mine. The kid from my bus threw him under the bus. That's where I first learned that expression. And I'll never forget Where I was in Mid Rivers Mall. I was in the food court when my dad looked at me and said, I'm going to give you one more chance to tell me the truth. This is the first thing David does right in two chapters. Verse 13 Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He could have kept trying to cover it up, could have had Nathan killed had no problem killing some other folks, like Uriah. He could have challenged Nathan, you know, and tried to justify what he did. Uh, He could have just ignored Nathan's warning. I'm the king, who cares what you think? I think an interesting question is is in in this moment of accountability, would David's reaction have been different if it wasn't Nathan? You know, let's say you had somebody with a little less notoriety, little less holy credibility. Let's say it was some soldier who, who saw what had happened on the battlefield to Uriah. You think it would have ended well for that guy? Or maybe it was, maybe it was a woman who, who saw the way David targeted Bathsheba under the moonlight. I don't think it would have gone well for either of those situations, but it's hard to say. What I do think we can say is that accountability and proximity are closely related here's what i mean david knew that nathan represented god that he was a prophet of god this is not the first time david and nathan have interacted together they have a long history together nathan was credible as a prophet of the lord and had been david had been with david a lot previously when we're dealing with mobs of people on the internet Accountability isn't coming from anybody who has close proximity. All the accountability on the internet is coming from people with nothing but anonymity. These these are totally different situations. At least the Athenians knew who they were voting out. We've just figured out quicker ways to do it from a distance. In my mind, efforts to call for accountability even if well-intended, even if well-deserved, can still ring hollow because of the lack of proximity. Let's, let's say that you see somebody online. Um, what's that group, Keeping Carney Informed? I've had like five people invite me to that group, and I can scientifically show you that my life expectancy is longer having refused every time. But let's, <laughs> let's say you see something online, and it really gets you fired up. I can't believe they said that. You just send, you just go off. Would you have had that same intensity or approach if your friend had said that during lunch? See, there's a difference in proximity there. Accountability is usually painful when it comes from without, when it comes from someone else to us. Now, in our healthiest times, Accountability flows from us to others. This is what I feel God calling me to. Will you help me? That's a healthy model of accountability. From God to me, out to trusted confidants, trusted companions. But accepting accountability when it flows the other way, from God to others to me, is a lot harder. It can be painful, but it's vital because accountability allows Jesus to have his rightful place to reign and rule in our hearts. It is no small thing to admit our brokenness and to admit it out loud. And so it can be tempting to cover up or justify or dismiss someone's call to accountability, especially when they're in close proximity. But a mature Christian realizes that accountability is for our good, that accountability can be the first step towards healing. Now, we often resist this. We often want accountability for others, but amnesty for us. And so I need to be, tr- I need to be mindful of, of the log in my own eye rather than always being on the lookout for the speck in someone else's eye. Jesus said something about that. But when accountability does come our way, how do we respond Again, I think the one thing David did right in this whole episode was responding to accountability with his admission. I have sinned against the Lord. Verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. There were no qualifiers. There were no angry reactions, no no justification, no excuse. And here's the key, friends. When when we're presented, when we're called to accountability, here's the kiss of death. Death. Note the difference between I have sinned against the Lord and this, I'm sorry if you feel that I have sinned against the Lord. (laughs) A couple little words make a big difference, don't they? He doesn't try and, and soften it one bit. He just takes it head on. That's where healing can begin and that's where the road to recovering from failure can start. And that's what we're going to get into more next week. I hope you'll join me and my friend, Pastor John Wayne, for uh, our live stream on Tuesdays. It's been pointed out to me that it looks like this whole thing has been canceled, right? Like, I got I to gotta fix that later today. It's a good point. <laughs> it's like, who's on first? George for the live stream. Oh, when is it? Oh, it's canceled. Oh, wait. So I'm, I'm not a, I need to talk to my man Keith back there and figure out how to communicate better. But I assure you, it's very much happening. And because uh, there's just there's just a lot to this that, that we're not able to get into in this forum and in this format. Um, we'll put the video in our newsletter. I'll put a link there. We're putting the audio on our podcast. You can search First United Methodist Church Carney and, and, and find the audio there on any podcast platform. Uh, again, there's just a lot of discussion of cancel culture in the Christian response to accountability that, that we just don't have time for but what I hope we can do in these three weeks is, is take a look at this hot button issue and look at it through the lens of Christianity and by the end my prayer would be that we all end up just a little more merciful that, that would, we, we'd be a little slower on the, the keyboard fingers of rage um That we'd be quick to to listen and slow to become angry. That we could be a more merciful congregation. That's my hope in exploring all this. When it comes to accountability and offering that to strangers on the internet, I think there's actually, I think really what we're talking about today is motivation. We shouldn't be motivated by doing this for sport and I think some of, sometimes our motivation is less than noble. Friends, I wonder, how much of cancel culture is us trying to shine a light on other people's sin in order to keep it off our own? Well, as long as we're busy talking about their stuff over here, maybe they won't discover mine in here. How much of cancel culture is us shining the light on other's sin in order to keep it off of our own? Friends, this should not be a sport that Christians get gold medals in. When we encounter sin within our own social circles or observe it in society at large, friends, there's a wide range of very appropriate Christian responses. Anger, I'm not telling you, don't be mad about something that's not right. Please don't hear that. Uh, Christians should have a righteous desire for justice. We should be speaking up for things to be made right we named our son Aaron after the Old Testament character who spoke up for God. So I'm not telling us to be polite, never mess anything up. There's a wide variety of Christian responses and I could make a longer list. What shouldn't be on that list is glee, that we would take pleasure in someone else's mistakes. I don't think calling people to accountability should be a form of entertainment. And that, to me, is what defines cancel culture. Ultimately, I hope the Christian response to sin is heartbreak. That after anger and and disappointment and and the the cry for justice at the end, I hope our ultimate response is heartbreak. Heartbreak. I I think about that line that God said to David, and if all this would have been too small, I would have given you even more. What could have been? And then our heart breaks for that because it didn't have to be this way. Friends, may we be people who are as quick to accept accountability as we are to offer it. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today, for the chance to be together in your presence and to hear from your word, these ancient stories that bring us back to timeless truth. God, we admit to you that we've got a David streak in us, that that our first instinct is often, oh, someone else needs to pay the price, but we want mercy for us. Quick to offer others accountability, but we want amnesty for ourselves. God, help us to be people who live with conviction and who aren't afraid to speak up, but to do so in ways that honor you. That we could resist this this cultural pastime of of piling on in whatever form that takes place, whether it's online or gossiping with our friends or uh, a million other ways. Help us to be people who are known by how much they forgive, having been forgiven much ourselves. God, we thank you for this faith community we can share and talk about what's going on in our world and how to live as Christians within it. In your son's name we pray, amen.